Welcome to the Mustang Owners Podcast. And now your host, Steve Hall. Welcome to the Mustang Owners Podcast. I'm Steve Hall. I'm the director of the Mustang Owners Museum. And today's guest is one of the more well-known Mustang journalists. In fact, uh, Jim will be in, Jim Smart will be inducted into our Mustang Hall of Fame uh, this coming April at our National Mustang Day event. So I'd like to welcome you to the to our podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Steve. Well, I'm glad we got we we're able to make this happen. I, I unfortunately you're you're one of the few people I really don't know that at all that much, and which is a, my I feel is, a, is, 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 is I'm ashamed of. Let's put it that way. However, I had a chance to I, I like to do my homework a little bit, and so I googled the name Jim Smart. With all the different Jim Smarts that are in the Google machine, as they say, it came out with 286,000 search results. And I thought that's pretty impressive. But then I noticed there's a drop-down box that said Jim Smart Mustang Product Production Guide. Do you know? Do you know how many results that comes up with? Um, you talking about the Mustang Production Guide? Yes. I think we sold somewhere around five or six thousand of them. Volume one and volume two. Volume one was sixty-five and six, and then volume two was sixty-seven to seventy-three. Right, and I'm going to talk to you about that in a minute. But I'm but I'm actually talking about when you put in a search in on the internet for the production guide, Jim Smart production guide. How many results will pop up? Is thirty-seven million. You're kidding. No. <laughs> So now, 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 yes, 37 million, actually it's even, it's 37 million, 900,000. So what that means is, and I hope you don't take offense to my comment, that book is more popular than you. (laughs) So I just thought it it was like, wow. I mean, but it does kind of, it does kind of lead to something. We have both of your books here and we have a number of your other books, which we'll talk about in a minute. And I have had people come into the museum's library and they see it. And then they ask, will we sell it? I go, no, I'm not selling it. He's, well, I can't find it. I've been looking for one, looking for one. Has there ever been a reprint of the book? Uh, we have never done a reprint. In fact, uh, the, the In Search of Mustangs effort and the production guide uh, went to Kevin Marty. It got to a point where I didn't have enough time for it, but uh, went to Kevin Marty many years ago. And he has a website called, uh, God, I wish I could remember the, but it's In Search of Mustangs. And I think if anybody just keys In Search of Mustangs into a Google search, you'll find Kevin's In Search of Mustangs website. But uh, I I know that, like, for example, Kevin's massive database covers 67 and up Ford, you know, Lincoln Mercury products, Ford Motor Company, from 66 back um, disposed of the records every model year. So regretfully, uh, 65 and six Mustang owners uh, don't have anything to fall back on. Volume one of the Mustang production guide has a lot of information that connects the dots on 65 and six. So it helps us establish when a lot of things happened well, and that's and that's great to have because, as you know, in the hobby, especially with the early generation Mustangs, the owners and the enthusiasts they 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 want to have that kind of information, 
because one is, like you say, the records are very, very scarce. So bits and pieces kind of come together. And that's why I noticed with the book is that it has, you know, certain pieces of information has been able to kind of, you know, through, I guess, investigative effort and talking to people and networking, you get little pieces of story from here to here to here and such and try to, you know, try to at least kind of put something together that's cohesive. But like you said, unfortunately, the uh, the, the numbers themselves are, are just not available as such. And so it's, it's, it's just, it is a shame because, of course, well, I, I guess I, don't, I really don't need to tell people uh, how important it is to have that information as to, you know, how many were made, what went on, those, those kind of details as you can with the 67s and on up. So I was kind of curious, um, as I went through the book a little bit, there are, uh, and again, of course, the book is, it was done in about 1994. Right. Um, some information, of course, has come out that kind of helps, you know, and I should say help, kind of adds to the information that you have here. But one of the one of the cars that you showed in there, had in there, you talked about, was a 0006, one of the World's Fair cars. Right. I know you. I know you probably haven't done any more work or research from it since then. But I want to let you. I want to let you know that there's a gentleman in uh, in the uh, same town I used to live in, in in Georgia. His name is Lawrence Booth. He's actually purchased the car and he's going to restore 006. Wow, I was wondering because it's ironic your timing on this because I I write for Mustang Hub magazine and I periodically do a column called Hub Talk and talking about this very subject, the World's Fair cars. And I know that uh, um, Ed White, who was president of the MCA a very long time ago, I think it was Ed White. Anyway, the name is escapes me, but uh, hauled number six out of a salvage yard, and it was pretty far gone. I know that Alan Shepley of Mustang Central wound up with that car and discovered just how real gone the body is, but uh, then Alan sold it to the gentleman you just mentioned. So I'm excited about this and want to know more about it. Well, um, I, I, I've actually had the good fortune. Lawrence and his wife, Tease, are, uh, they're, they're friends of ours. I knew him before the museum, actually. He actually re does restore Mustangs. He does a meticulous job uh, with them. And he also, in, in his group of cars that he owns, he owns the very first uh, 1965 Fastback ever produced. Um, he may have which assembly plant? Let me ask that. Or do I, you know? I don't know. I'm just. I should. I should say his words, not mine, as far as being the first one. But I think they have done their homework on it. But he. I don't know which which planet came out of. To be honest with you, I don't know. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be interested. I know. I know. There was a gentleman in South Carolina who uh, found. Let's see. One two five zero zero one San Jose. And then Dearborn would be two five zero 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 one would be, but um, and then we, I just heard from a gentleman in Germany, I believe, who has serial number four, Dearborn a K car, and I think those first sixty five fastbacks produced in August of sixty four, I think they were all K cars, the first five or six or whatever the seen information on so it's so it's exciting when these landmark cars surface and uh i'm just so thrilled that number six is surfaced and is being restored i w would love to actually go see him and the car well let me let me kind of maybe in, entice you a little bit more than to come out this way that is we have in the museum right now zero 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 four 
and it is the it is the other World's Fair car, and we've had it for 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 a number of years, and, we'll, and we've been fortunate that we'll probably have it for some time. And so Lawrence has come up here, uh, done a little, done quite a bit of a little bit of research physically with you know looking at the car we have. And my understanding is he's hoping to restore it back to uh, a full restoration level. Let's put it that way. Uh, mm -hmm. While the one we have here is more original than uh, what uh, what number six will become. But uh, Lawrence is very likely because the owner of 0004, he's coming to the same National Mustang Day event to be on hand. Uh, we have a couple of cars here that we thought, you know, it might be f interesting to have the owners here so people who, you know, look and understand and appreciate what these cars are, can actually meet the owners and talk with them and kind of, you know, you know, get, you know, get a little more of a family story about the car. Because in, in this case, just much like the Sean's Bullet, this 0004, it was, it was used as a family car. I mean, they took it around to, you know, the, his father was a doctor, his mom was, a, I think, a teacher, but they drove that car around just for, it was transportation. It was not something kept in a time capsule at all. So uh, we kind of thought it'd be kind of fun to have that. And then we also have one more car here that's actually uh, written up in your book a little bit. And that is a 64 and a half. And the last three number VIN numbers is 211. Yeah, the uh, Wimbledon white six-cylinder hardtop. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that was. That in itself was a great story. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but well, a little, a little bit. Todd, the owner, very nice guy. When I found out about the car, uh, I talked to uh, Charles Turner first, and Charles kind of made the comment, "You really need to talk to this guy. He's thinking about restoring the car." And so uh, we talked to him again, kind of had an opportunity. So we have it here on display. We actually even built a barn to be fashioned around it as a barn find car. Beyond that, we don't have a lot of information. So if you can share a little bit, we'd love to hear more. Well, I'll tell you what. The one thing I've been looking for for years has been back-to-back O5C, O9C cars, meaning that with a date code of O5C, which would be in theory, March 5th, but it's, yeah, March 5th of 64, but it's really just kind of an arbitrary date code to flag pre-production units. So everything from 001 through approximately uh, 180 would be pre-production units. Right. And then anything with an 09C date code would be mass production units because it, it, it's it's been a strange story that's evolved over a long time. If you look in the Mustang production guide, we talk about production beginning on March 9th, 1964 with 001. Well, we have since learned there's no truth in that statement that uh, pre-production units were serial number one through roughly 180. I, I have an article from Ford World from back then and they said approximately 170 pre-production units have been built at Dearborn Assembly. So that kind of closed the gap of 05C meaning pre-production and then 09C meaning the beginning of mass production. So what we wanna see is back-to-back pre-production and mass production, you know, 05C and 09C. But so far, 211 is um, the earliest 09C known vehicle and it's a base sticker price hardtop you know 2368 
176 with a stick and, you know, just no options. No, it, and that's obviously one of the reasons why it was probably done or manufactured early because it didn't have any parts to hold it up going through the line. And they can just, you know, bang those out as quickly as they could for, for what we understand, for what we've been told. So uh, that that makes perfect sense because uh, we understand the car was actually found literally in a barn in the Wake Forest, North Carolina area. And uh, we're, we've asked, I haven't heard back from Todd, but we're hoping that, because he lives, he lives locally in Charlotte, that he will be able to come over for our National Mustang Day event also. Because, again, it's a car we've had here for some time, and it, you know, it doesn't look all that pretty, but yet it's got a lot of patina of, of history to it also. So uh, it'd be kind of nice to have, that, have him here to be able to talk about the car a bit. Because, you know, some people, understand, when we explain to them just how, Early that car was built, it kind of oh okay starts to understand why it's there, not just uh, not just a barn find car as it were. I think that's that's uh, that makes it a little bit more interesting. I think for folks, I did want to ask you a little bit. Obviously, when you've done your research with the book, and I'm sure since then uh, you're, you've you've stayed involved with Mustang for quite some time. How many Mustang books have you have you authored? Um, that's a good question. Right off the top of my head, a handful of technical books that are Ford-related books that done by CarTech book. More recently, I've done a Coyote book. Let's see, what else did I do? Fox, Fox Mustang book, mostly technical books. I did a book back in 88 called the GT Mach 1 book, and it's funny because it's you know, really done done a long time ago, but people are still looking for it, which I find amazing. And then the Mustang production guides, I'm, I was stunned when you said 37 million. <laughs> I think there may be, I mean, I know it would be a lot of work, but if there was an update to that book, I think you'd find there's a lot of interest from what, from what the numbers say marketing-wise. But uh, yeah, you do a Google search that says Mustang production guide, and it results 37 million. That is incredible. It tells you how many people are really serious about Mustangs. It does. It does. So I'm 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 thunderstruck <laughs> by that number. It's like because I mean I think we sold like five or six thousand of volume one and volume two and, and maybe maybe more than that, but you know, how does Five or six thousand copies turn into thirty-seven million hits. Oh my God! Well, it may be because people can't find the book; they're having to research online. <laughs> I think there's maybe there may be a little bit of uh, maybe that may be part of the reason why the number is so high. But uh, it's definitely out there. the The enthusiasts know about it, so I just wanted to share that with you. I just thought that again that would be kind of interesting. What I didn't know if you were aware of that. So I wanted to then kind of move over to the books themselves because you've done a lot of. Well, you've authored a lot of books, but I'm sure you might have some kind of interesting stories. And you know how Mustang guys are. We all love to hear stories or hear a little bit more about an urban myth, uh, you know, that's been, as they used to say, for Mythbusters. It's either been, you know, it's true or not true. But I was just curious if there are a couple of uh, things that you researched the book and whatever that you came across. You thought, wow, that was just that wasn't something you expected. Or that was something contra contrary to what you've always thought or believed. I was hoping you might have a couple of stories like that you could kind of share with our audience. Um, I think in all my research, uh, and I have to give a lot of credit to Jim Haskell, because Jim Haskell co-authored these two books with me. And uh, and I don't know where Jim is today. It's been a long time since I've seen him or talked with him. But he is really the guy that gave In Search of Mustangs life. I mean, he, at, at the time, I mean, the time I started on this whole thing was like 1979 or 80, but 
Jim suggested getting it all into a computer database. And, you know, he really knew a lot about the subject. So he took all the information that had been amassed for In Search of Mustangs and then turned it into real data. So he was able to come up with percentages and details, although it doesn't cover the number of vehicles produced, but but it is amazing what he was able to do for the book. And he was the one that really cattle prodded me into finishing that book. So he and I partnered up on it and and he did a phenomenal job. So between the two of us, we put a lot of facts together. And I also have to give credit to the late Bob Freya, who did the Mustang Genesis book. Bob did an incredible amount of research into how Mustang production started. And and he really was the guy who came up with pre-production units versus mass production units. So you had uh, pilot units that were assembled at the pilot plant, which is actually was the Edsel plant. And then Edsel went belly up and then Ford turned it into a, into the pilot plant. But the pilot plant was actually a Lincoln plant, an Edsel plant, and then that, that went up in smoke. But anyway, the pilot plant, I don't know. I only know of one pilot Mustang in the hands of a private owner, and I think that's number nine. So the serial number would be five S as in Sally, and then I think it would be 07K something. I, I fail to remember. But anyway, it's a, the pilot unit, number nine, it's been customized. I don't know all the facts about it, but I think that's the only pilot unit I'm aware of that's in private hands. And I do know of a 67 pilot unit that's in a, a trade school or something in Michigan, which I was surprised to hear about. But but I mean, rarely did pilot plant pilot units wind up in the hands of private, you know, private individuals. But I'm trying to remember where I was going with that. But I wanted to give credit where credit's due for people that uh, shook the ground and really made a difference. Well, that's one thing that we've kind of learned here is that we try to find out more information about something. You start, we just start to ask people. You know, we ask people you know that we know have been in the hobby for some time and see if they can help direct us or network us or you know put us in the right direction. And sometimes they're, you know, many times they're able to do so because it could, it could take, you know, it's a, it's kind of the the reverse of Kevin Bacon. They always talk about was it six steps away from Kevin. Sometimes you have to go the other way where we're trying to put the information out and six steps away from us, we'll find it. Somebody will have, have, may have that information some, and from the most unlikely places. But that's what's nice about the hobby is that, you know, generally everybody's trying to, you know, hey, we have some, you know, if they have information, they're always willing to share and be part of it. I did want to ask you about, uh, I was kind of curious because this came up in conversation a couple of months ago. 001, of course, was the convertible that went to Canada with the airline pilot. 002 was the person you just spoke about, Bob Frias. And I understand that the history of that car was that it was originally shipped to the Yukon Territory and sat right. sat in a dealership for about 18 months because there they like trucks because of all the snow. So I didn't know if you might know more about that. I want to ask you if you might know more, a little bit more about 002. 002 was in Canada, and then it wound up in the hands of Scott McMullen, good friend of mine, um, definitely the guy to talk with about early K cars, uh, hypo cars. He had that car for a time, 
and then he sold it to Freya here in Southern California. And Freya went to extremes on restoring the car, trying to find as many new old stock components as he could. And, and there's a lot of prototype stampings in it, even though it's a production car or um, pre-production car, but just a lot of uh, prototype pieces in it that probably um, wound up on the car because they needed all the pieces they could get, you know, to build them. Because, I mean, there's a number of early cars that have Falcon parts on them and that kind of thing. But anyway, Freya went to extremes to uh, get the car as authentic as he could. And uh, I don't know all the intricate details about it, but uh, but his his passion was intense, to say the least. <laughs> You're right. He he was definitely. It actually led to him doing a book, which uh, I know that the hobby was was very happy to have because it helped give them some more insight to what could be you know, how these cars were done. So he he did a great job with that. But unfortunately, like you said he's pat. You know he he did pass away. Was it two years to 2020? It was uh, April 1st of 2020, and yeah. uh, I think he and his wife, Joyce, were very early COVID victims. I think their daughter had come off of a cruise or something and had no idea. Oh, boy. She had it, but uh, it killed him in like four days. I mean, it was just, I mean, I was absolutely shocked. I got a call from Joyce informing me that he was on life support and it's like you're kidding because i mean bob was 75 but he I mean he was fit you know a healthy guy well he was he was a ball of fire i mean i don't think there's really much that he'd sit around on he was always doing something uh you know uh, car related especially in southern california uh, a couple times i was back that way i know craig cunningham from the la club would talk about boy bob's doing this and bob's doing that so he was he was energetic yeah, he was very serious about Fords. He had a gorgeous 63 Galaxy convertible, uh, a 57 Thunderbird. I mean, he had had ni really nice cars, a, a 68 Cougar GTE, I believe, with a 428. Just interesting cars. And, of course, in the wake of his passing, some of them have been sold off. But uh, mm -hmm. uh, he was a retired United Airlines captain, and he and I shared – a passion for aviation. So when we got together, uh, you could almost see us from a satellite. It was intense. <laughs> <laughs> well, this kind of leads me to where I wanted to ask is, of course, if we talk about, you know, 001 and 002, uh, as I was mentioning, we were talking the other day, a couple of us uh, about, we have number four here. So we know what 01 went and where 02 went. Do you by chance have any idea where 03 went? Because our understanding is the World Ferris car started with 004. Yeah, they actually started with 003 and went through 0014. Okay. So number three was a World's Fair car, as far as I know. The thing about the World's Fair cars is when they were through at the fair, they were shipped back to Karen, Karen and Company in Inkster, Michigan, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because they'd been beaten to pieces on the Magic Skyway. They got new interiors and uh, tires and... You know, they were freshened up and sold off the Ford employee resale lot in Dearborn. So I would say a percentage of these cars stayed around Michigan and salt and rust and all that took their toll. And there's a few survivors. I, I mean, number six, I mean, how do you figure, how did that thing get in Macon, Georgia? So, you know, cars move about the country when people move. But I would have to say most of these 
World's Fair Mustangs for both 64 and 65 wound up in Michigan and, you know, winter took its toll. No, you're you're right. And the nice thing about 004, uh, the owner, uh, he actually even went so far as he's got the paperwork from Karen uh, about the work that they put, uh, did on it. He did a lot of research on it, so he really went back to it. He actually, uh, he he was in search of that car, to be quite honest with you, from what I understand from the family, is this was the car, and, and he, you know, he was a Mustang guy, but he wanted that car. But for some reason, his uncle bought it first. And uh, I think a couple of years later, he was able to get it from his uncle. But no, he went out, he, and he, he shared that. We have that information here that he shares with folks to see just all the work that was done to it. Because when it was at the World's Fair, you know, they had to take out the cigarette lighter. They had to unscrew the, uh, the window crank. Anything that could be possibly loose or taken off within t in 15 minutes, because that's how long the ride was. They had to make sure they removed it because otherwise it always it was always stolen. It was always just taken from the car. So it was some interesting stories we got from the family. That's why we're excited to have uh, have Lee, his son Lee Mansell, come out to the event and kind of share more and talk about what because his dad was just very intense about rest not so much restoring the car but learning about the car. And he he wanted that car from the very beginning, I guess, when he found out about it from the World's Fair. So kind of interesting the the passion that people will have with that. Uh, with Mustangs and what drives them. Um, Gary Schweitzer, who owns uh, one of the 65 World's Fair cars, uh, he and Kevin Karsh uh, did a tremendous amount of research on the World's Fair cars, Karen and company paperwork. I mean, they pretty much covered the gamut on these cars and missed a lot of misconceptions about them. Um, and then Gary managed to find, I think on eBay, another 65 world's fair car in raven black and he and i talked about you know what do you what do you do with it he'd already he'd already restored his white one but it got to a point where you know was he up for restoring another one which had a significant amount of rust in it and so he sold it i think to a guy in new jersey who is restoring it now so there's another you know so you got number six and then you've got 383, 378 that Gary sold to the guy in New Jersey, I think it is. So you got World's Fair cars that are being restored or been restored. So it's exciting, you know, to see a, a segment of history saved. Well, it is. And the fun, the nice thing is we have a lot of people who come to the museum and then they'll share with us that they were at the World's Fair and they remember the ride. Now, they some are too young to remember what they rode in. Some do remember that they would wait and wait and wait until a Mustang would come up in line to get it and doing the ride. So it's always interesting here. And that was the passion even back in 64. People, wanted, you know, they, they remember those things. Even as a kid, they remember they got a chance to ride that Mustang. And the interesting part we've also learned, and you probably know this, but uh, that the, the ride itself was designed by Disney. And uh, we're, we're working on, we should have the actual engineer that designed that ride He's actually in Southern Cal. He's actually in Southern California, in Anaheim. He's still doing tours. It's called the Walt Tour. Uh, he takes people around and show things outside of Disneyland itself that are that are Disney related. They have him on to talk about how they designed it and what the you know what they had to go through and what have you. But uh, it's uh, it's interesting that had Disney had its fingers on the development of the ride in the Ford Pavilion. Yeah, I think his name is Bob Kerr, something like that. Right, Bob Gurr. Correct, Bob Gurr. And uh, he 
um, I was at some event where he was public speaking a long time ago, and I find it remarkable that he's still with us. And because I, I don't know how old he was when I when I met him a long time ago, but it was remarkable how he explained how the whole Magic Skyway went together. And you know the 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 world the New York World's Fair went together in a year. And I mean, when you look at it, it's like, how do they do all this in a year? Oh, it's amazing. It's incredible. So never say it can't be done. Mm -mm. Just, I mean, when we look at the Ford Pavilion, we have a model of it. We had a, a professional modeler make a model for us, and everything's in scale. Cars on the road next to it look like ants compared to the size of the building. I mean, so it, obviously it was huge. Uh, and so was the whole World's Fair, for that matter. So... No, it's, 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 and of course, a lot of people feel that that's kind of, you know, that's, that's, to a degree, that's where the Mustang was born because that's where it was announced. You know, that's where it got, uh, more, got public, started the publicity started at the New York World's Fair. Interestingly, I found out in research, everybody thinks, everybody looks at April 17th as the day that Lee Iacocca announced the, announced to the world about the Mustang. People think that that was during the World's Fair, but come to find out, the World's Fair didn't actually open until April 22nd. Right. And the reason they did that is that they were the only story that day from all the world press. So it was, it was that was even that was very smart to uh, to make the announcement where all the press was at the New York World's Fair from around the world, and here's here's your here's your story for the day: Mustang, Ford, or Iacocca, and then Ford product planners knew about the World's Fair back in as early as 62, 63. And the goal was to have the car ready to go by mid-April of 64. So Mustang is another thing that happened at warp speed, round the clock, seven days a week for 18 months. So they went from drawings to assembly line in a year and a half. Which is unheard of. Yeah. Well, you know, and they didn't have the technology we have today, and it seems like it takes forever to get anything done today, but back then, it, it was just remarkable to me how quickly Mustang went from concept to production line. Oh, no, you're absolutely right, and then they also talk about how they only had a budget of $40 million, that even back in that, back in that day and time, that's very low for a new car, and, you know, you think of $40 million, even in today's dollars, that's a lot of money, but... It's not. Uh, I guess it's not cheap to make a new new vehicle, but uh, so they they had a small budget and they had no time to do it in. No, they really didn't. And I think Henry's message to Iacocca was, "If it fails, you're on the street." Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I think that was certainly implied. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Yes, I would have to agree with you. I have to tell one more Mustang story, please. I, I don't want to run you into overtime. Um, back in 09, I did a photo shoot with Lee Iacocca and the Iacocca Mustang, the limited edition that they did in uh, 08, 09 timeframe. And I was not happy with my shoot, so I, I felt like we needed to shoot it over again. And so I reached out to uh, Lee Iacocca's assistant and asked her if we, if we could schedule a reshoot. And I was I was so sure, you know, that because of Iacocca's time being critical, um, that they wouldn't do it. But he agreed to do it. Well, in the meantime, I caught swine flu and was sick as a dog 
but had to go do this shoot and I had had a high fever, not feeling well. And I get to the shoot, get to the shoot and there, get everything set up. And then uh, Mr. Iacocca came out of his house and uh, went to shake my hand. And I said, I don't want to give you the flu. I'm sick with the flu. And he looked me in the eye and said, give me your hand. Uh, yes, sir. Wow. <laughs> and the, the Iacocca handshake is, uh, it, it was an interesting handshake because when Lee Iacocca shook your hand, the grip, you know how when you shake somebody's hand, there's a natural point of release time, right? Sure. Right. Mr. Iacocca, the handshake didn't end until he chose for it to end. So you go to release and he grabbed your, he grabbed your hand. Like, I'm not done with you yet. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. How interesting. interesting. You know, he just looked you in the eye and shook your hand and hung on until he chose to release. And, and that happened on three different occasions. And it's like, wow, <laughs> commanding presence. Oh, he, he uh, yes, that's one thing I do understand from talking to some of the uh, some of the workers, some of this team that did the early Mustangs. That he he definitely commanded the room. When he walked in the room, it was he was he was com even if you didn't necessarily knew him, you knew he had a presence. But let me wrap this up with a couple quick questions we like to we like to ask uh, our guests if you have a, if you don't mind for a minute. But what's your favorite Mustang? Me? Yes. <laughs> I I love 67s. I feel like um when Ford, you know, made that first significant change in the Mustang, they have the simulated side scoops and uh the car was just more sculptured and and I mean I've had a couple of 67 Mustangs and I've had a couple of 68s, but there's just something about the 67 that I personally like and and that bleeds over into Shelby's the 350s and the 500s. To me, they were the best-looking Shelby's ever done. So, I don't know. I I love '67s. No, nope, that's that's great. Well, when, how old were you when you purchased your first Mustang? I was. Let's see. That would have been. I'm thinking. I was like 17, and I bought I bought a buddy's '67 hardtop. Got it nice. Got it painted, and then managed to total it in a rainstorm. So my mom. My dad bought a used 67 hardtop for my mom and, you know, to have as a second car for 400 bucks, like in 74, had a broken seat back and had been banged up. But uh, that's really the car I fell in love with because I drove it. And that's like, I just, I love the way they drove. I don't know if they love the way they drive now because, you know, you're used to better technology. But uh, one thing I discovered working on my 67 is you've got to be a contortionist to get in it or out of it without <laughs> banging your head on something. It's like, man, was this hard when I was a young man? You know, <laughs> no, I, I, can, I, I can understand that because we have an Eleanor on display made by Classic Recreations, I guess it is the company that made it. And when you do try to get in it, you literally have to put your head in first, your shoulders have to get in, and then you can start to try to contort to get into it with your legs and, and your your well your your rear end. It is uh it is a difficult car to do so. Well then let me ask you this, which one would you want to have back? Um I had a I had a 68 GT Fastback that I rescued from a salvage yard. It was a 390 car, but 
I, I rescued a shell out of a junkyard in North Texas when I was in the Air Force. And that is a car I wish I'd hung on to and then found an appropriate 390 to put in it. And then, but I, I sold it when I, I needed to focus my energy on my 67, which my mom gave to me. So I let the 68 go, but that'd be a car I'd want to get back and get it right, you know, with a 390 in it. Yeah, it sounds like a true Mustang guy. And uh, that's why I want to ask those kind of questions, because we all have a passion that goes just beyond driving them. Uh, and obviously you've made a career out of it. So it sounds like you, though, from what uh, the conversation, so you, you're doing you're doing work with the Mustang Hub? Yeah, Mustang Hub magazine from uh, from Wheel Hub uh, Publications. Uh, Henry D. Los Santos, who uh, used to do uh, Muscle Mustangs and Fast Fords, uh, he is an incredible editor. And so he, uh, he and Steve Kim of, of Wheel Hub, they created Chevy Hub and Mustang Hub, and they're incredible coffee table magazines, brilliant color, they're thick, they're, they're keepers, you know, they're a magazine that you, you'd feel guilty throwing in the trash after you read it. So I'm, I'm honored to work with Henry and, uh, you know, with these magazines, because, I mean, it really broke my heart when Mustang Monthly was uh, put out to pasture along with 18 other uh, titles that I, I just think it's sad that they're gone. And Mustang Monthly was a great magazine because it encompassed all all model years. And uh, it was, you know, for the it, it didn't focus so much on racing. It focused on driving and enjoying these cars and history. And so so the, the loss of Monthly was a sad loss. It really was. Well, unfortunately, there are a lot of people that are not saying a lot. There's thousands of people that would totally agree with you it is disappointing but uh you know it's, it's they're gone i mean it's what can you say it's just unfortunate but uh well i'm gonna have to take a look into find out more about mustang hub because I've, I've heard of it i haven't seen a magazine uh, i haven't seen the copy but uh need to do a little bit of a little work on our end because uh, we like to try to care we like to have every mustang issue that's ever been done in our library also so people can come back and do research or find a car that they just recently bought that was showcased in one of the previous magazines. And so we're pretty close to having quite a bit, but uh, we still have a little ways to go. I'm hoping that you may uh, think about coming out here in April. I know it's a long way to go, but we got a lot of activity, a lot of things going on. And there'll probably be some people here, which I can, that uh, you may uh, may know or may like to meet or get to spend some time with, but uh, we'll have a lot of things going on. Uh, so we are expanding the museum. And uh, so we're gonna have some pretty cool things. In fact, couple things i'd like to talk to you about when we get off the air um and uh i want to thank you for coming on board and taking the time to uh, to talk to our folks well a pleasure and uh certainly a favorite subject of mine and for nearly 50 years i've been in the mustangs so it's uh it, it's amazing a passion turned into a career and i uh, am blessed beyond words we we used to tell Gail Halderman the, the same thing. Uh, Gail, did you realize how many jobs you created for everybody because of this Mustang? And he uh, he started laughing. He says we had no idea it would be this good. He says it's he says we just knew we had a good car. We just didn't know it was going to be that that it was going to last that long. And so uh, we used to kid him about that. He was a he definitely kept the employment. Uh, up as far as in the car world or gave people the opportunity to have a job in that uh, that area so but again jim thank you for, thanks for joining us and uh, i'm sure we'll we'll probably talk again in the future so thank you 
Thank you, sir, very much. We hope you've enjoyed listening to another episode of the Mustang Owners Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss any episodes. For more information on the museum, please go to mustangownersmuseum.com and you'll find additional information on upcoming events.